0: Episode 190, The Deeply Dramatic Impact of Medicare Pay-For-Value. Today, I speak with John Gorman from the Gorman Health Group.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value
0: the biggest pay for value program in history is the Medicare stars rating initiative. I heard on a Navigant podcast recently that for every star a Medicare Advantage plan gets, it earns 8% more revenue between the financial rewards for improved performance and the increased enrollment. Then we have MIPS and APM. Today, I speak with John Gorman, founder and executive chairman over at Gorman Health Group. John has a reputation for telling it like it is. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, John.
1: Thanks so much, Stacey, it's a pleasure to be here. Been looking forward to this for weeks.
0: Yeah, well, likewise, same here. So last time we spoke, I had said something to the effect of, well, I'm not entirely sure what impact value-based payments have really made in this country today. And you immediately Mm -hmm. said, what? They have had a deep impact. And you mentioned the STARS program. Maybe you can add some color to my misunderstanding.
1: (laughs) Uh, Sure. Well... (laughs) um... Yes, I mean, you have that exactly right, that the star ratings program in Medicare Advantage is probably the biggest value-based payment initiative possibly on the planet. It's billions of dollars every year that has dramatically impacted the behavior of almost 500 companies that contract with the Medicare program to provide benefits in Medicare Advantage. It came online many years ago. A lot of folks, you know, really kind of laughed initially when they said they're going to hook a value based payment to the star ratings program, which at the time of its inception was really just this kind of crappy consumer information tool that only about 2% of beneficiaries use to make plan selections. Today it's billions of dollars with about 50 measures that the plans are held against. And, you know, on a scale of one to five stars, you have to hit the all important fourth star to get the bonus and the rebates that the program funds. And those bonuses and rebates have changed behavior among these companies and among the providers that contract with them dramatically in the eight years since it's been operating. So it's been a tremendous success in terms of moving quality into. Indic- Especially in parts of the country where we know quality for Medicare beneficiaries was the worst, we've seen the greatest impact from star ratings occur in the deep, deep South and in the Rust Belt, where you know many of those health systems, like in Alabama or Mississippi, work really kind of hard to provide the poor quality that they do. And Stars has had a uh, significant impact on what the beneficiaries are getting in those states now.
0: And how so? How has that transpired? Because obviously, Medicare Advantage is a payer and care that people receive, generally speaking, comes from providers. Could you connect the dots there?
1: Sure. Well, so the plans are held to, as I said, about 50 measures of quality. And that includes everything from drug adherence measures on whether or not diabetics are taking their insulin correctly, to a range of Medicare member experience measures that are wrapped up in what we call the Consumer Assessment of Health Plan Survey or the CAP survey, as well as the Health of Seniors Survey, which is a biannual survey, longitudinal study that checks the quality of care provided to seniors over a couple of years of enrollment in a plan. And those member experience measures now account for over half of the rating itself. And the reason that's important and why it's wrapped up uh, providers in all of this stuff is that providers actually have a lot more to do with the member experience than the plan staff does. The average Medicare Advantage health plan staff member will touch their members maybe eight to ten times per year. But the average Medicare beneficiary in Medicare Advantage incurs 26 encounters in the outpatient setting each year. So right out of the gate, individual providers of care are three to four times more influential than the plan's own staff on those quality measures. And even more so in the retail pharmacy setting where the average Medicare beneficiary goes over 40 times per year. So the providers have much more impact on stars. And those providers that share risk with that Medicare Advantage plan, like if they are in turn capitated or they get a percent of premium deal, when the plan scores that all-important fourth star or higher, and gets the bonuses and rebates, then they get a portion uh, of those funds that are getting paid out uh, as well in their payment downstream from the plant. So this has had a a significant impact in improving that quality. For instance, in 2015, the average star rating on an enrollment-weighted basis was 392 And then a year later in 2016, it was up over 4.03 with 75% of beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare Advantage in a plan that was rated four stars or higher. So the beneficiaries are choosing the higher quality plans. Those choices are reinforced by the fact that once you get that four star and you start getting that bonus and rebate from the federal government, that money has to largely be used to reduce out-of-pocket costs or improve benefits. So there's a very high correlation between a high-quality plan under STARS and a lower premium and bigger benefits, richer benefits for those members. So it's had this ripple effect uh, across beneficiary choices as well as provider behavior, as well, and for that reason, it's it's really impactful of all of the quality demonstrations that CMS is working on today.
0: And also, just another example of where healthcare does not follow your average economic rules. In other words, right. the, the higher quality is actually the lower cost keeps happening.
1: Yeah, and it's funny how that works, right? That, you know, generally when you're providing great quality care to seniors, I mean, what's the one thing that you know about a senior, right? If she's not sick today, she's going to be. And, you know, so many of these measures are aligned to ensure that, especially chronically ill beneficiaries, are getting, you know, the very basics at least done for them. And that, in turn, reduces their overall cost of care, and makes everybody happy.
0: Here's a question that I have about the 50% or more than 50% of the star rating is attributable to patient experience. Here's my consternation. I have read two books, or let's just say read one book and started reading another one. <laughs> one yeah. of one of them is by Dr. Robert Pearl, Mistreated, and then there's another one by Martin Macquarie, which is entitled Unaccountable. And both of them highlight the point that in the United States today, we've got this weird issue where people are receiving substandard care and really not understanding, you know, there's a quote in the Macquarie book about how a patient said, bless my providers or something like that, like basically after they just were mistreated. What my point is, is that they could be getting substandard care, but still ranking the plan highly. How does the star rating take that into account or does it?
1: That's certainly possible, though I think given the nature of the measures that are at work in Medicare Advantage, that that gets a lot harder to do. I think the chances of receiving substandard care are frankly much, much higher in traditional fee-for-service Medicare or in the commercial world than it is within the very closely regulated system of Medicare Advantage. I mean, Medicare Advantage is literally the most heavily regulated program in all of health insurance. And, you know, while there are some some bad actors out there and some sub-quality plans in the program, they don't tend to last very long. When they're watched and this carefully and the scrutiny is this relentless through the star rating system, as well as all the other compliance mechanisms that CMS imposes on these companies, that is not the case whatsoever in the traditional unmanaged, completely unaccountable fee-for-service world.
0: It's interesting what you just said there, that Medicare Advantage is the most Regulated form of Medicare, yep. or maybe even the most regulated form of insurance. And yet, it is. based on my understanding, insurance companies are flocking to Medicare Advantage.
1: Yep. It keeps the lights on for them.
0: And yet it's so regulated and you you get insurance companies complaining all the time about the amount of regulation. Well, if this was an easy business, we'd
1: be out of business. Um, (laughs) But it's also monstrously attractive because once you get you pay the table stakes of the compliance investment and, you know, the regulated infrastructure that you need to operate in the program, it is generally very lucrative. And the members tend to be very sticky. That is, they don't tend to leave once you sign them up. Generally, the payment rates have been, you know, the plans survive on generally about a 3% margin. But you got to remember that the capitation rates that are paid by the Medicare program to these insurers, Stacey, are typically 6x what you see Commercial payers receive from employers or certainly from individuals. And that's a multiple, even greater than that, if you're talking about dual eligible beneficiaries who are low income or disabled Medicare beneficiaries who also receive Medicaid. The monthly capitation all in between Medicare and Medicaid for a dual is often up to 20 times greater than what you see in the commercial world, given how expensive long-term care is in particular for those beneficiaries. So it's uh, it's a ton of revenue that with some relatively tight margins, and it allows every major, certainly publicly traded uh, insurance company, this has become their sole source of organic growth, both in revenue and in earnings for the last several years.
0: Let me just understand that. So if I have a Medicare Advantage plan, then I am paid six up to 20 times more per patient per month than I yep. might be if I was in a commercial and being compensated by employers. A large employer. Mm-hmm. But That's every, right. But everybody's always complaining and saying that commercial patients have to subsidize Medicare patients because Medicare is paying below cost.
1: I don't hear anybody saying that anymore. Uh-huh. They were they were bitching like that a few years ago, but we haven't we haven't seen anything like that. There really was a tipping point that was reached probably around 2013-2014 where you really saw certainly the big publics like United, like Humana, Aetna, you know, really shifted their entire strategies to increasing the amount of government business because it was so stable. And the revenue is just so significant.
0: If I am a healthcare provider, so I'm a large health system or, you know, even a small independent, and I have a yeah. number of Medicare patients in my patient roster, mm-hmm. what do I need to know, given everything that you just said relative to how much incentive Medicare Advantage plans have and the growing number of patients that are on Medicare Advantage plans?
1: Well, one is you just have to recognize what's happening demographically and what's going on with these programs in particular. Medicare Advantage is 35% of the Medicare program today, and it's going to hit 50% by 2025. Uh, with over, at that point, it'll be over 34 million people, uh, enrolled in it by 2025. So within just a few short years, at least half on average of any provider's patients uh, are going to be enrolled in Medicare Advantage. So this isn't something that you can afford to stick your head in the sand about. This is really a program that you need to come to understand. You need to understand who are the private payers that are operating in your service area and start thinking about what the nature of those relationships should look like. Now, I think many, many providers have at least one contract with a Medicare Advantage plan today. I think it's probably a dying breed of providers that are not doing business with these companies today. We're at almost 22 million enrollees in Medicare Advantage right now. And depending on where you are in the country, the penetration rates, as I mentioned, we're at 35% nationally. But in certain parts of the country, like in California, it's already north of of 45%. Buffalo, New York, you know, was 3% penetration in Medicare Advantage when the Medicare drug benefit launched in 2005 and it's over uh, 45% enrollment today. Same with Atlanta. Atlanta was about 5% Medicare Advantage enrollment when the drug benefit launched in 2005. Today, it's at uh, 40% penetration. So, you ignore these trends and these demographics at your peril then you got to look at what's going on with baby boomers i mean this is the population that we're serving today 11,000 of them are enrolling in medicare every freaking day stacy and what we're seeing since 2014 when they really began enrolling in medicare is that 50% of baby boomers are signing up for Medicare Advantage within their first two years of their eligibility for Medicare. So we have to remember that this population, as opposed to the World War II generation that preceded it, is a much, much more private plan friendly audience because over 90% of these folks had an HMO or PPO when they were working and they're perfectly comfortable continuing that relationship into their retirement. Now, Medicare Advantage is really the only place where providers have any hope of uh, seeing rates of increase in their payment rates that are keeping any kind of pace with the rate of medical inflation. Next year, we're going to see Medicare Advantage rates go up, depending on what county you're operating in, 35 to 6.4% next year. And that trend is expected to continue for the next couple of years. That's before all of the additional bumps in payment that these plans get, not just from star ratings. And when you hit that all-important four stars we've been talking about, but if you're good at what we call risk adjustment, which is the system by which Medicare pays these plans more for taking care of sicker beneficiaries but pays them less for taking care of healthy ones. Most health systems, you know, obviously are seeing patients that are going to be sicker than average. And so being in a system of care that's going to go up at close to the rate of medical inflation, that has a shot at quality bonuses that are significant and that are risk-adjusted, they're just not seen in traditional fee-for-service Medicare. And so over time, providers that remain dependent on traditional Medicare are just going to continue to see their revenue and their margins decline to the point where it just becomes unsustainable. I mean, at this point already, Marcus Welby's dead. I mean, <laughs> the, this whole idea of you know individual practice and small physician practices, they just can't sustain this. Uh, With the amount of administrative costs that they have to bear with uh, all of the electronic medical record expenses and everything else that's going on today. So it's critical that providers find a way to do business with Medicare Advantage plans. And I take every opportunity to tell our plan clients that you have to find a way to be a collaborative partner with the providers in your community. And that over time, they learn to bear risk with uh, these Medicare Advantage plans, because that's ultimately where uh, the entire system is going.
0: So let's talk about that for a sec, what a collaborative relationship might look like. But first, just Mm -hmm. kind of one sort of level setting question. Obviously, the plan is being uh, compensated on a in a capitated basis. Is that right. also how they tend to contract with providers?
1: That's how they like to do. Now, there's still an enormous amount of fee for service derivative payments going on downstream from Medicare Advantage plans. But if they had their wish, they would say, as every policymaker would, that we want to see all providers bearing risk downstream as well. And all of the research shows that the highest quality is provided by providers that share risk with their Medicare Advantage plans. I mean, look at Kaiser, which has consistently been a five-star rated company uh, since the inception of the star rating system. Now, obviously, they're unique because they own their own delivery system. But anybody that has a high degree of integration with its provider network downstream tend to be among the highest rated plans, and those providers tend to be the most highly compensated.
0: Yeah, and that brings up an interesting conundrum because Kaiser obviously was conceived as an integrated network. It was conceived, built on a technology platform that was interoperable. Mm If we're talking about some of these FFS providers, you know, ones that are still building FFS and they are not mm-hmm. anywhere near bearing risk, are they able, honestly, to achieve the kind of quality that a, a Medicare Advantage plan is looking for? Because obviously, to your exact point, if you're going to produce outcomes amongst diabetes patients and make sure that their A1C is under control, you have to have yep. some sort of care plans and pathways that that you're actively yes. managing. And if the patient doesn't show up for their next day one C test, you have to have a you know methodology by which you get them back in the office. Is that even <laughs> in the wind for for some of these FFS practices? Or maybe I should, you know, kind of put it in terms of the marketplace. Is is the marketplace ready for that?
1: I think in this day and age and forevermore, when it comes to Provider alignment size does matter now. As we said earlier, Marcus Welby's dead. I mean, there's just no way that small practices can bear the administrative expense that was necessary these days, not just to deal with interoperability and electronic medical records and all the rest, but just to provide good quality care and then to be able to report and prove it. You know, the amount of reporting That providers are subjected to today is only going to increase as we go down this road to value based payment. And so, you know, a two practitioner office just is not going to have the heft and the margins to be able to invest in the kind of infrastructure they're going to need to keep up. So it's only a matter of time for small practices unless they start to band together and spread the costs of being able to be an accountable provider um, so that they, you know, they actually have the ability to manage some risk and to be able to prove it that they're still providing that high quality care in that environment.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you to, some, to straighten out some cognitive dissonance that I have. Are you ready, John? <laughs> sure. <laughs> what we've just been talking about here is obviously what you just said, proving that you're delivering high-quality care. And the proving that we're delivering high-quality care obviously comes at an administrative burden. And oftentimes that administrative burden has been cited as a massive reason for physician dissatisfaction, all the clicking around in the EHRs, et cetera, et cetera. And
1: all the retirements that we're seeing.
0: Other retirements. It sounds like maybe there's another, well, maybe this is another spinoff for you, John, prov- Providing that back end service for these drivers. Oh yeah.
1: I mean, you know, certainly a very lucrative space to be in right now is is in providing MSO and analytic services that enable providers to bear risk. That's where it's all at. All you need to look at is like a company like Alidate that's putting together ACOs, they're you know, their primary care based ACOs nationwide and they're shooting the lights out with that model. Hmm.
0: Branching off from Medicare, along the same lines uh, in our value-based payment conversation that we're having here, we've got the MIPS and the advanced you know, APMs, yeah. so the advanced payment models. Yeah. I definitely want to get into you prognosticating, <laughs> but if we're just kind of talking about what's going on right now relative to those two programs and the impact that they might have, maybe you could just add some mm-hmm. fidelity.
1: Sure. Well, um, both these things came out of legislation a couple of years ago um out of uh, MACRA and while it had a lot of provisions in it around interoperability and things of that sort MIPs and APMs were really two of the biggest provisions of the law since its passage i think APMs have emerged as a massive and major and very significant incentive to drive providers in the future service world toward uh, value and toward accountability. And that is especially the case in the brand new APM that is a risk contract with a Medicare Advantage plan. So if you hold a contract with a Medicare Advantage plan and you bear any form of downstream risk, that is now qualifies as an APM and it gets you a 5% bump in payment from Medicare Part B. That is huge. And so I think APMs are going to emerge as a very significant tool in this march to value-based payment. Now, MIPS are kind of on the other end of the spectrum. They're hugely complicated. They don't really result in a whole lot of uh, revenue upside for doctors and even the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission The blue chip panel that advises Congress on Medicare, they hate MIPS. And they basically said in their last report that they think they ought to be phased out. And I I would tend to agree with them on that. So I think over time, among the two big initiatives that came out of MACRA, APMs are going to be a major – APMs and bundles are going to be major drivers of payment in traditional fee-for-service Medicare. And MIPS will probably fall by the wayside and be – you know, roadkill on this uh, value-based highway here.
0: And APM, the advanced payment models, are typically pursued by larger health systems, whereas MIPS was designed yes. for the smaller practitioners. So basically, exactly, this could be just another reason why the smaller practitioner, if MIPS kind of stinks, and it's also going to get phased out, there's nothing there.
1: Yeah, one more nail in the coffin of Marcus Welby.
0: Let's prognosticate a little bit here. You know, we've got a new administration who may not be quite as, let's just say, exuberant about the opportunity right. around value-based care. Do you see this trend as inexorable? The train has left the station. We've obviously got some health what, 18% of our GDP at this juncture. It's, Tough, really hard for it to you know value based payments are seen as a way to keep that under control so this is going to happen regardless of anyone's personal feelings or do you feel like that is not the case
1: No I think it is it's it's inexorable and it's going to happen in fits and starts it came roaring out of the station during the Obama administration and then came to a screeching halt after Trump's election and his appointment of his crooked HHS secretary, who uh, has since left office in, in uh, a travel scandal, as uh, as you remember. Mm-hmm. Now we've got a new HHS secretary in Alex Azar, who is very much uh, a value proponent. And he's really encouraging CMS to open it up again, because Tom Price the previous HHS secretary, that guy was an orthopedic surgeon and he hated this whole move to value-based payment because he just thought it was burdensome to his physician buddies, especially his surgeon buddies. Now that he's out of the way, you got Azar in there, who's a big proponent of this stuff. And now they've got Adam Bowler, who's running the innovation office at CMS. And he is really going to be the architect, I think of some pretty significant moves that we're going to see in the next few years. I mean, Adam is is a rare actual innovator himself. He was the founder and CEO of uh, Landmark Health out in California, which did home-based care for several hundred thousand beneficiaries and did a damn fine job of it, I'll add. And he's coming out of the private equity world and he's got a long career as a true innovator and stuff so i i took real heart in his appointment to the innovation office and i think we're going to see the engine of value based payment just revved up once again under his leadership. And then finally, you know, I think just this drive of APM, Stacey, is going to intensify, especially around the Medicare Advantage risk contract APM as the program expands over the next several years. I mean, remember, we're going to be a 50% penetration of Medicare Advantage by 2025. And that means there's going to be a whole lot more providers downstream in a position to take a risk contract with a Medicare Advantage plan by then and then avail themselves of the opportunity of the 5% bump from Medicare Part B. So I think that's going to help drive a lot of this stuff as well.
0: Where can people find out more information about what you are up to with your various pursuits, John?
1: We are very active uh, bloggers at Gorman Health Group, so we encourage those who love wearing green eye shade and have pointy heads to go to uh, <laughs> com and read our blog. It makes for stunning bathroom reading. But then I'm just a prolific social media writer. So I, I put a ton of stuff up on LinkedIn daily. I do a lot of stuff on Twitter. you know. And then I love doing stuff like this. I give about three dozen speeches a year at big industry gatherings where, you know, I I, I really try to make people think about where we're all going. I'm not just giving them history. I want them them to have the news and what to do
0: about it. Well, I think you have a reputation for doing just that, my Mm -hmm. friend. (laughs) Thank you. I hope to speak with you again soon, John. This has been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you,
1: Stacey. I had a blast. Thanks so much for having me on